Hi, this is the podcast recording of Generations Home Church with Noah Johnson. Enjoy. Um, so we've kind of gone through the last several weeks. We kind of we started with repentance. Then we talked about um, what did we talk about prayer? after that? Prayer was that next? We talked about prayer. Uh, talked revival. About... Oh right, prayer and revival. And I thought it would be good. I was trying to. I was kind of debating about if we should just jump into a book, but I thought, I feel like there's a lot of people even within our own family or even us that have walked with the Lord for a long time because we live in such a kind of biblically illiterate culture where that's not a part of our everyday life to just pour over the scriptures. I thought it would be cool if we just did a survey basically through the Old Testament. We tried to go as quick as we could. And then either we jump into the New Testament or also a survey through the, the New Testament, and then we just pick a book. Um, I know for me, and especially with like teaching the kids. What do you mean the survey? So by survey, I mean we'll hit the highlights, like the big points, but we're not going to go through every single verse. So we're going to try and like, we try and, Genesis will take a bit longer just because there's so many foundational pieces, but other books we would try and go through in like a single sitting. Like we're going to go through and we're just going to jump to the main the biggest points, the most important things. Um, I found that with the kids, uh, teaching kids for so long, that having like the, the big story to then be able to plug in the other parts as you go really helps give you an overall view. Um, just like when you're looking at a house, if you only have the foundation, then you have the roof and you have a couple rooms, the house looks really weird in your head. But if you build from the ground up, it gives you an idea of as you go, then you can put in the details. Oh, we want to put in this really nice couch here, but you know what the couch is going to look like because you already have in your mind what the living room looks like because those kind of framework pieces have already been put down. So with that being said, we'll jump into Genesis and I will warn you that today's will not go very quick. We won't go through a huge chunk because I think Genesis will probably take us probably three or four weeks to get through because it's so foundational. Um, and by that, I just mean almost everything else that you'll ever find throughout the remainder of the Bible is mentioned in Genesis. So I'll just give you guys a couple of quick, um, just a couple of quick things that are mentioned in, in Genesis. Um, obviously, God, the first mention of God is Genesis 1-1, uh, that God created all things. Uh, humanity is mentioned in Genesis for the first time. Sin, atonement is mentioned for the first time in Genesis. Um, the idea of covenants and promises mentioned in Genesis. The idea of a people, Israel, also Genesis. The idea of human beings being image bearers of God, Genesis. Uh, the first ideas of the devil and there being a, a warfare between God and his um, faithful spiritual beings and a group of rebellious and wicked spiritual beings is actually all through Genesis. Um, the idea of dominion over the earth, uh, to rule and to reign with the Lord, even though we talk about that in Revelation and we think about that, oh, one day we'll rule and reign. Really, that idea begins in Genesis. Uh, marriage and family begins in Genesis. The first ideas of death and life and those two things being contrasted, Genesis. Uh, God's goodness, Genesis. And Sabbath rest, all Genesis. So almost every single subject that comes up in the remainder of the Bible will really be uh, the foundation for that thing or the first thoughts or first ideas will be laid in Genesis. So 
With that being said, we will open to Genesis 1. Um, I'm going to read the first verse. Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the waters and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And from here we go through, again, I'm going to try and go as as quick as possible, but really the entire first chapter is really about the Lord creating things. And whether or not you believe like I do in like six literal days and the earth is really young, or you believe in something in between that and evolution where you think God used certain things within evolution, ultimately what it comes down to is that God created everything And then I think uh, more specifically, as we get to day six, when God created Adam and Eve, there has to be a literal Adam and Eve. So wherever you fall on that spectrum, we won't get into that. I mean, that's something that we can talk about later. I do fall in more of like a literalist idea of there being six actual days. Wherever you fall in there, you do have to have a literal Adam and Eve that literally walked with God that literally turned away from God to bring sin and death into the world and all the other things we see. What? So, I didn't even know there was another thought on that. There's a whole bunch of different yeah. variants between that and people who believe in full-on evolution and that Adam and Eve evolved from apes. Or some people that are Christians that don't even believe Adam and Eve are real people, but have a uh, are more like a symbol of humanity. So I'm saying that of all those views... That's really up to you to, to decide where you want to fall on that. Like I said, I'm, I'm pretty uh, fundamental in my belief system. But it is, it is important and vital that you realize that Adam and Eve were special creations of God, that they were actual people, in my opinion, because of the rest of Scripture refers to how, not only them, but how they felt. How can you not hit? How can a person say that there isn't? a literal Adam and Eve because so many things are connected to him. Yeah, yeah. and I'm not... Forward, it's like, okay, Right, and so, I'm not even saying... the whole thing is just made up. Sure, and, and that's why I'm saying I think that that's kind of... If I was to say there's a linchpin to the rest of Scripture, that's it. If you don't believe that, I don't know how you kind of understand the rest of Scripture. But like I said, I don't want to veer that. deep into that. Um, I really want to jump ahead to uh, Genesis 2. It says in verse 1, So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed on the seventh day. God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested. And on the seventh day from all his work that he had done, God blessed the seventh day and he declared it holy. For on it he rested from all his work of creation. Then as we get further into chapter 2, it says this, These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation at the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. No shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not made it rain on the land. But there was no man to work the ground. Um, I want to stop right there real quick. A lot of people will be like, oh, these are two different creation stories. You have Genesis 1, where it goes through the whole creation, and then Genesis 2 is kind of this other creation story. And really, the entire Bible doesn't have chapter breaks or anything else. Really, all this is, is he's giving, gives you a quick overview in, in chapter one. And as we get into chapter two, now he's going to go back in time. As he said, the plants haven't even grown up yet. So the plants that he created on, I think it was day four or day three, um, they, they haven't even sprouted up yet. They haven't begun to grow. And now it's kind of going to give you the breakdown of Adam and Eve. He's going to go at a more kind of 
micro view. Let me give you the close up. Let me go back and kind of give you some details. And so he goes into it. He talks about um, talks about the mist watering the ground. In verse seven, it says, "The Lord God formed the man out of the out of the dust from the ground." And he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. Verse 8 says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. And the Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there, it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bedlam and Onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria and forth. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed him out of the ground and every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. And then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman for she was taken from man. This is why man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked yet felt no shame. Okay, so... Um, we're going to kind of jump back and dig in a little bit deeper. And the thing that we're going to dig into, you might think this is kind of a random thing out of everything we just read to dig into. But I think as we go on, you'll see the importance of it. And I really think, um, when Nick and I were in school, we read this book. It's actually right over here called who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord. And I don't know about for Nick, but for me, it was like kind of mind blowing because it started to take parts of scripture that didn't always uh, either resonate with me or make a lot of sense. And it started to plug them into the bigger picture. And it actually became so much a part of it that it actually showed, it kind of showed you the entire picture of scripture. And so what I want to really dig into today um, is the idea of this garden. So God's made this creation all through Genesis one. It talks about every single thing that he makes. It's good. It's good. It's good. And then there's this kind of almost, you can almost miss it because it doesn't seem significant, but he takes man out of this entire good creation. And it says that he takes him east where he's prepared a garden. So the garden is different from the rest of creation. It's special. It has a special place and it has, uh, it's different. And it doesn't mean that like it's these other places are wicked, but there's a certain amount of 
uh, perfection or goodness that is there. And as we continue on in the story, what we'll see is God is there with them. That there is a um, yeah, the Garden of Eden. But Eden so and the Garden are two different places. No. Well, it says right here, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Okay. So I think the garden is within Eden. Yeah. The garden's within Eden, and the river flowed out. And the river flowed out. I would say through. Yeah. What I would say is, if we as we get into this, it's more like that part is the set the center part that it, everything else flows out of. Okay. So, anyway, we'll go into that. <laughs> so, Noah, when the, when the garden was there, there were already other people? No. Nope. Oh, okay. I, no. I misunderstood. There was other creation, and the garden was separate from the rest. God created everything. Oh, thank you. That's then he created Adam, and then it says that he placed him in this garden that he had prepared. Gotcha. And so, really, the idea there is that there's something special about this garden. And really what all the ancients believed is that a garden... Yes, it does. The river flows out of Eden and it goes out of the garden. And what we'll see is as we go on, um, that goes even all the way into the book of Revelation. So there's the idea that... Uh, Okay, let me let me back up. So we're in the garden. We're in the garden of Eden. This is not the garden. Can we do a drawing of this? There's the whiteboard. You guys, I just want to point out this is exactly why when there's preaching at church, they don't actually let people ask questions or have problems. Because literally, literally nothing will get done. I know you have a plan of where you're going. <laughs> okay, so in the ancient Near East and all ancient peoples essentially believed this. Creation was God's temple, but there was a specific place within God's temple where he actually dwelt. And this would be in almost every single uh, religion and any really ancient belief system. This would be on a mountaintop because that was an inaccessible place for humans to be able to get to in a lush garden. And if you think about it, one part of that would be a garden where food grows, you don't have to work hard for it, and there's accessible water, thus the river, and that this river basically would allow your garden to constantly be lush, constantly full of fruit. And the idea being that in the presence of God, where God dwells is a perfect place. Not that the rest of creation wasn't good, but that this place is perfectly suited, not only for people, but for God. It's on this mountain, it's in an inaccessible place, and there is a garden where there's plentiful fruit, plentiful food, and there is plentiful water to drink and to feed the garden. So if you think about it, Shalom. Uh, right, it's perfect peace. You have everything you need, perfect rest with God. And if you think about it, all the ancients, even in the ways they did things, you can see that they did this. For example, the Greeks, where did they believe Zeus lived? On Mount Olympus. Uh, even at the Tower of Babel, as we get to Genesis 11, what are they doing? They're literally, man is now taking it into his own hands to reach up to God's dwelling place. So they're building a tower to reach up to God. And really, even though in the Bible it talks about that God called the place Babel, because it confused their language, to the ancient Phoenicians, really what that word meant was, Babel really meant the gateway to God, the gateway to heaven. So they were essentially trying to reach to God's gateway 
to enter into God's presence. As we see later on in this story, as it unfolds, Adam and Eve are tempted. They eat the fruit, the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat, the fruit that's going to kill them. And what happens is because they eat this, God says, man can no longer dwell in my presence in the garden. And he's going to be cast out. And what God does is he actually closes the gate to get in. You'll see that he puts a a cherub, an angel with a flaming sword to guard the way so nobody can get in. And yet in Babylon, we have this idea of them building this tower to reach the gate of God. And so it's this contrast of like, God said, no, you can't come in here anymore. And yet at Babylon, they're they're trying to defy that order. They're trying to reach up to God. Uh, Think of the pyramids. The pyramids are man-made mountains to reach up to the gods. And you can go through over and over. Like I said, we have uh, Mount Olympus. And then all through the Bible, the reason this is so important is mountains are going to be a huge thing. So I kind of want to unpack this a little bit and I guess kind of prove it to you guys because it doesn't, as you're reading through Genesis, what you'll notice really quickly as we just read through there is there is no mention of a mountain and there's no mention of a temple. And yet it's clear from the rest of scripture that this is exactly what it's talking about. It's talking about this place where man is dwelling with God in the Garden of Eden. It says that God is, walks through the garden. At one point, he walks through to call them. So he's there in their presence. They're in his presence. They have the choice of life and death before them. And everything is, is perfect. They have everything they need. So if somebody would, somebody who's comfortable, <laughs> turn to Ezekiel 28. If somebody else, if somebody will just say, I've got Ezekiel 28. Awesome. If somebody else will turn to Psalm 15. Me. Mogan's got Psalm 15. <laughs> if somebody else will do Psalm 24. I've got that. Okay. Gosh, this is so fun. And then if somebody else will turn to Revelation 21. I'll do that one. I just want to point okay. out they don't do this in church either. They don't. And I could read all of them, but I find it more enjoyable for you guys to do it. And the other stuff. <laughs> All right, uh, it's going to be 28 verse 13, Katie. Yeah, and I want to mention real quick, this is in the book of Ezekiel. And at this time, the Lord is basically giving a, um, a pronouncement of the evil of the, the prince of Tyre or the king of Tyre. And what you're going to notice is, there's kind of this back and forth between a human king and some sort of spiritual being. And it flips back and forth where you're like, oh, that sounds like it's talking about a man. And then literally the next verse will be like, that can't be a man that has to be talking about somebody else who's not human. Uh, Which so verse is it? it's verse 13 uh, through 18. Go ahead. You are in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Carnelian? Chrysolite and emerald, topaz, onyx, and jasper, lapis, lazuli, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. Wait, is that it? Keep going through uh, verse 18. Sorry. Uh, 28, 13 through 18. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. 
Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the Mount of God, and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you, and it consumed you, and I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. Okay. So this, I think, uh, we can all agree is speaking about some sort of cherub, divine creature, who was, it says right here in verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. It says that this creature had all these different types of valuable stones as its covering. Uh, it then says, sorry. Oh. It then, it then says that uh, they were prepared on the day you were created. So it's a created creature of some kind. It says you were an anointed guardian cherub. And I had appointed you, and you were on the holy mountain of God. So he's in Eden. He's a spiritual being, and yet he's on the mountain of God. So right here, it's put. It's kind of connecting these ideas that literally in Eden is this mountain of God, where, as it appears, these different guardian cherubs dwell, and where God dwells, because it's called his holy mountain. It says... I appointed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in all your ways. So at this point, it would appear that this creature, if we want to call him the devil or Satan, whoever it was, was perfect. He's in the garden of God. He's blameless. And then suddenly wickedness is found within him. Most likely, it's the moment that the devil decides, I am going to tempt these people. I want to be like God. I want to be worshiped by them. I want to, for whatever reason, the Bible doesn't really get into a whole lot of it, but he decides he wants to stumble mankind. He doesn't want them to be part of this sanctuary. And so he gets them to be kicked out. Jealousy. It says here that um, he was expelled in verse 16. So I expelled you in disgrace from the mountain of God. I banished you you guardian cherub. So he was this creature that was there. He was a guardian cherub. He's literally dwelling on the mountain of God as it talks about back up in 13 in Eden. So I think if nothing else, I think these, these groups of verses really are conclusive that Eden is a, a mountain dwelling of God and a dwelling of God is a temple. So we're looking at a mountain dwelling of God where the temple of God is, where he dwells with his people. They are in his presence. They are with him. They are in peace with him and with everyone else, including these other spiritual beings, these cherubs, these angels, whatever you want to call them. Um, finally, it says you profaned your sanctuaries. And that also could be referring to a temple because many times throughout the rest of the Bible, the tabernacle and the temple is referred to as the sanctuary of God. So if somebody, whoever has uh, Psalm 15, uh, I believe it's verse 1. Uh, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Okay. Lord, who can dwell in your tent is what mine says. Mogan says tabernacle because this is directly referring to the tabernacle in Exodus that's set up by Moses, the place where the Israelites will come to worship and sacrifice. 
And it says right there, Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? Again, the same thing. These things are connected. The presence of God is on a mountain. And he's probably referring to not just the tabernacle. Can it, does anybody remember what, what Moses was told about the tabernacle when he was creating it? God said to him, make sure that you build it this certain way. Yach, do you remember why? Uh, it's an image of heavenly That's right. It's the image of the heavenly dwelling of God. So the tabernacle on earth is just a mirror of what's up in heaven. So again, the Bible is talking about God's tabernacle is on a holy mountain. Uh, if somebody will read uh, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Okay, stop right there. Again, the same idea. He's talking about creation, all of creation. The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. For he laid its foundation, seas, established the rivers, everything else. But then he says, but there's a specific place where I dwell. And he asks the question, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? And anytime you hear the word holy place, again, think back to Exodus. The place where the ark dwelt was called the holy place or the Holy of Holies. So these are all, every single time you're reading something in the Bible like this, it's not just a word that's like a nice word, like, oh, a holy place. It's literally referring to an actual specific location. All right. Uh, who had Revelation 21? I do. Okay. Uh, nine and 10, if you would. Nine and 10. All right. Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Then they carried me away in spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Okay, so where do they take him to see the, whole, to see the new Jerusalem coming down? A really high mountain. Now, if you think about the different prophecies of the Old Testament, and even as we get into the New Testament, it talks about making the way straight for the Lord. In other places, it talks about the mountains melting, the high places bring, being brought low and the valleys being brought high. What's it talking about? It's basically talking about the whole world becoming a flat surface. But yet we know there's one place that isn't flat. It's the mountain of the Lord. So it's gonna be this, this one spot that is exalted above all other spots. As the other mountains melt and the valleys are brought low and every place is made flat, the mountain of the Lord is exalted. It alone will be the place and the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven and sit on top of this mountain. And the reason I think this is so important for us to get into a little bit, even though maybe you think, oh, this seems kind of obscure. Why would you focus on this of all things? Is because if, if what man had in the garden was, perfect communion with God where we walked with him and we talked with him and we were his friends and there was no sin and no death. The Bible talks about this is our also our final destiny. If, if Jeff had read further on into Revelation, what it talks about is this is going to be the new Jerusalem. It comes down to earth. It dwells on this mountain and we all who have put our faith in the Lord get to dwell with him. In essence, we were in perfect harmony with God, in perfect communion with him. 
man and woman were in perfect communion. Man was in perfect communion with all the other angels and spiritual beings of God and the animals and the, and the creation itself in a garden in the presence of God in his holy temple on the mountain. And our final destiny will be in perfect harmony with God in the temple of God on the mountain of God. Except what it says in Revelation is there won't even be a temple because the Lord himself will be our temple. We won't need any walls or anything else. We'll have perfect access to him. And so the reason that, that I'm saying... was how it was in Eden too. Yes, right. You come and go as you please. There was no stopping you until they sinned. And then we see there was immediate break in that access where it says the Lord in, at the end of verse uh, or chapter 3, it says that he drives them out of the garden. And then he places a cherub, a guardian cherub, to guard the way back in. So you no longer have access to God. So really the entire book of Genesis is we start on this pinnacle, the pinnacle of human existence that none of us have ever reached again. Only Adam and Eve ever tasted of it. Where the Bible talks about no, uh, we, you can't even imagine the things that God has for you. It hasn't even come into the imagination of man. Yet Adam and Eve... They got to experience it. They alone. And the rest of Genesis is essentially a downward walk off the mountain, being driven further and further and further from the presence of God. Now, as we get to Exodus, what we're going to see is God trying to bring us back into his presence. And so what he does is he brings them through this water. He brings them through this destruction, through the Red Sea, as he destroys the Egyptians after them. And where do they go? They go to a mountain. They meet God at Mount Sinai. And who goes up there? Moses. And as he's up there, what is the mountain covered in? The presence of God, which uh, manifests itself as flames and smoke and fire. And what he gets up there is instructions of how to dwell with God. Here's how you have to live. Here's how you have to treat one another. Here's how you have to do things in order to be in some sort of relationship with me. Now, are they in the same relationship they were in at the garden? No, but they get to have some semblance of a relationship. And so what God says is, I am going to set up a mountain for you that you will take with you wherever you go. My presence will go with you. My tabernacle or my temple will go with you and my, my mountain will go with you. So the tabernacle is actually set up as a mini form of the mountain. What you'll see is, uh, well, we'll go into it. Uh, let's go to Genesis 3.24. I will read that. If somebody else will read Psalm 80, verse 1. I got that. If somebody else will read Exodus 25, 10 through 22. Okay. Psalm 99, 1. Okay. Um, Exodus 26, 31 through 36. Any takers? Okay. Exodus 26, 31 through 36. Um, we could go back to Ezekiel 28, but I think we've already established that that was the one that Jeff, or I think Jeff read. No, Katie, you read. And it was about this cherub that was in the garden of God in Eden on the mountain of God, and then wickedness was found in him. So I don't think we need to go into that part because we already read it. Uh, Ezekiel 10, 3 through 10. Ezekiel 1, 23 through 28. Okay. 
I'm going to read Genesis, I think it was 3.24. Yes. Uh, I'll, I'll start in 23. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden. He's talking about Adam. To work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. So, only in God's presence is life. They are driven from God's presence and thus driven from life. And there's a cherubim that literally stands in front of my access to God. So here's this cherubim. He's standing in front of my access to God. Uh, whoever had Exodus 25, 10 through 22, will you read that? Anybody? Oh, okay. Anyone's interested in some nice prose that I've put together in the form of an audiobook on this? Do see me after this. <laughs> and they shall make an arc of acacia. Okay. <laughs> and they shall make an arc of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length. A cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlook. Okay. You can actually stop right there, Mom, and, and skip down to verse 17. Sorry. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are the ark of the testimony. Okay, you can stop right there. Um, so... As we saw even in Ezekiel 28, there's these cherubim, they're dwelling on the mountain of God, but of course at the very pinnacle at the top is actually where the Lord dwells. So in the Ark of the Covenant, or in, I'm sorry, in the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant is placed in the Holy of Holies. Nobody can enter that place all year, except for one day on the Day of Atonement, and only one guy, the high priest, can go in to make his sacrifice, bring in the blood of the sacrifice for the day of atonement for all of Israel. That is the place, he says, where I will actually meet with you. So we went from the garden where we had unlimited access to God. Now we go through thousands of years of having no access to him. Now people prayed to him. People had a relationship with him like Noah, but they didn't actually have access to him. Yet we see here that he tells them to build this mercy seat and that will be the place where I will meet with you. In other words, here's these two cherubim angels. I will meet with you right above that. And we see that as we go into, uh, if somebody will read Exodus 26, 31 through 36. What is it? Exodus 26, 31 through 36. You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. Okay, stop right there. Okay, so we've seen that inside the Holy of Holies is an ark called the Ark of the Covenant. And above it are two angels or cherubs facing each other. And God says, I'll meet with you right there. But before, as you're moving out from the ark, the next thing you see is what Bogan just read. 
there is a veil made of thick woven cloth. And on the veil is what? A cherubim. So to access the presence of God, you have to go past the cherubim. Exactly like what you would have to do to get back into the garden of God. So what he's saying is, I'm giving you small access into my presence again. But they can't go there whenever they want. And not everyone can go there. In fact, no one can go there. Except for one guy who will represent the whole nation to God. Just as we see further on, there will be one guy who will represent all the people of the world to God. He alone is allowed to go into the presence of God. Um, Ezekiel 10, 3 through 10. So there's this cherubim blocking the presence of God. But even when you get into there, there are cherubim below the presence of God. Now the cherubim were standing to the side. Real quick, let me set this up. Ezekiel is a prophet of God. He's having a vision of Yahweh. What chapter? Uh, 20, I'm sorry, uh, 10, 3 through 10. Now the cherubim was standing to the south of the temple when the man went in. The cloud filled the inner court. The glory of the Lord rose from rose from above the cherubim to the threshold of the temple. The temple was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the Lord's glory. The sound of the cherubim's wings could be heard as far as the outer court. It was like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. After the Lord commanded the man clothed in linen, commanded the man clothed in linen, take fire from inside the wheelwork from among the cherubim. The man went in and stood beside a wheel. Then one of the cherubim reached out his hand to the fire and was that was among them. He took some and put it into the hands of the man clothed in linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form human hands under their wings. I looked, and there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one wheel beside each cherub. The luster of the wheels was like was like the gleam of burial. burial. In appearance, in appearance, all four had the same form, like a wheel within a wheel. Uh, what is verse 11? Verse 11 says, when, when they moved, they would go in any of the four directions without pivoting. Okay, that's fine, actually. Um, that's far enough. I think the first part, I probably shouldn't have had you read that far. But if you guys remember back to the very beginning when he read that, what it said was, he saw the glory of the Lord. So he's having an actual vision of the Lord in the Lord's temple. Not the one made with human hands down here. The one in heaven. And what does it say? It says that you had these cherubim. And the glory of the Lord, it was filled with smoke. It was above them. Exactly like we see in the, in the tabernacle is what happens is, as you guys remember, as Israel is walking through the desert, what is above them? Cloud. A pillar of cloud or smoke. What happens when they build the tabernacle and they do everything they're supposed to do at the end of Exodus? It says this, the cloud covered the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. This is uh, Exodus 40 verse 34. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In other words... Here's this tabernacle. Here's the Ark of the Covenant. Here's the two cherubim, the mercy seat. After they did everything they were supposed to do to prepare the temple for God to dwell in it, this cloud that at night was a flame of fire and during the day looked like smoke or a cloud, this, uh, what am I trying to say? This pillar came down and actually dwelt in the Holy of Holies. Where did it sit? 
the place where God meets with them, right above the cherubim. Where did Ezekiel see the true and living God dwelling? In a cloud of smoke so you couldn't see him. Why? Because like he said to Moses, you can't look at me. If you looked at me, you would die. So there's this veil of smoke covering God, even in Ezekiel's image or a vision. And when he sees this vision, what does he see? But cherubim below and the smoke and the presence of God Almighty right there. Exactly like we see down in the tabernacle and exactly like we see all the way back in the garden. What is guarding them from getting in? Not only a cherubim, but what is it? A whirling flaming sword, whatever that means. But it would be a mass of maybe flames and an angel there. Exactly like what you'd see in the Holy of Holies. Exactly like what you see in the temple of God in Ezekiel's vision. But here we see the direction is the south rather than on the eastern border. Perfect. You and dad should get together and you guys can do this. <laughs> you guys can do this thing where you try and trip me up. Oh, no, I'm not trying, oh, no, it's, just, it's interesting. They obviously put the if you go, in if you go into Ezekiel further at the new temple, it does actually come eastward exactly like uh, okay. it's just, it's just Um Okay, the final one I think is, did we already do Psalm uh, 80? No, I got that. Okay, let's read Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, who you lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Okay, so he's enthroned upon the cherubim. That's where God's throne is literally on top of these angels. And then there's this bizarre contraption. If you read further, you could get more into it, but it's got these wheels spinning inside of wheels. And basically, wherever they go, the wheels go. It's like they're guiding this thing, but it's the throne. And above it, are, is God. And so it's moving around wherever they take it. And what you'll notice is Israel does the same thing. When God tells them to move, they will put poles into the Ark of the Covenant and they will move. Only the priests can move it though. You'll have three or four guys in front, three or four guys in back, each holding a pole and they walk and wherever the Ark goes, the presence of God goes. And where does the presence of God go? Wherever these cherubim are. So the cherubim are moving as Israel's priests move it around. Wherever God's telling them to go, they start to follow the cloud so that the Ark of the Covenant is always staying with the cloud. We see in Ezekiel the same thing. Wherever the cherubim move, God is going. Because God is the one controlling them. Okay, uh, Psalm 99.1 basically says the same thing. Uh, but somebody can read it. The Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim, let the earth shake. Okay, again. The Israelites were very, very comfortable with this idea. In fact, they knew it all together. It's why constantly through the Psalms, you see David saying, Mount Zion, Mount Zion. And yet, as we read through the Bible, there is not a single mention of Mount Zion. What is Mount Zion? As far as, I mean, as far as like an actual location. Now, sometimes Jerusalem will be called Mount Zion, but we know that it hasn't yet reached that place. In other words, Mount Zion is the eschatological promise, the future promise of what Jerusalem will become. This mountain that is raised up higher than all the other mountains as every other mountain is brought low where the new Jerusalem will dwell. The old Jerusalem isn't the one that we're looking for. It's the Jerusalem that's filled with idolatry and sin and evil. He's saying there's a new one coming. It will dwell on this mountain and you will dwell with me. Um, I'm going to read Ezekiel 1 real quick. 21 through 28. 
This is another vision that Ezekiel has of the Lord. If I could flip there fast enough. I have it open. Um, when the creatures moved, the wheels moved. When the creatures stopped, the wheels stopped. And when the creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose alongside them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. And over the heads of the living creatures, so again, the likeness of an expanse was spread out and it gleamed like awe-inspiring crystal. And under the expanse, their wings extended toward one another, just like in the temple on the mercy seat. They each also had two wings covering their bodies. And when they moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of a huge torrent, like the voice of the almighty and a sound of tumult, like the noise of an army. And when they stopped, they lowered their wings and a voice came from above the expanse. So here is these wheels. Here are these angels. Those wings are pointed at each other. There's this crystal like gleam, almost like a translucent ocean above it. And above that, he hears a voice. A voice came from above the expanse over their heads. And when they stopped, they lowered their wings and something like a throne with the appearance of lapis lazuli, or however you pronounce that, was above the expanse over their heads. And on the throne, high above, was someone who looked like a human. From what he seemed to be, his waist up, I saw a gleam like amber and what looked like fire enclosing it all around. And from what seemed to be his waist down, I saw what looked like fire. He is seeing the son of man. He is seeing Jesus standing there. This divine being that looks like a human. He is raised up on this throne above the cherubim, above their wings, above this gleaming, shining like platform or ocean on this throne and he's above the throne and the bottom of him from the waist down looks like a flame of fire and the top of him looks like gleaming bronze that's what he sees the same type of image that was seen by nebuchadnezzar when the three israelite hebrew boys were cast into the fire and he said look one who looks like a son of man as we go through the rest of the bible the same like image revelation what john sees yeah um, there's a couple other things we go into, specifically the river. Uh, Genesis talks about this river flowing out. As we go into Ezekiel's further vision in Ezekiel 47, he talks about the new temple that's coming. From that temple, he sees a river flowing out. It says at that river, there are plants growing that give their fruit every season and their leaves will be as medicine for the nations. What does that sound like? Revelation 22 says the same thing. Out of the presence of God from the new Jerusalem will flow a river and it will feed or it will water these trees. What we are, what we assume from Revelation are the trees of life. It says again, their fruit will come every season. Same exact language as Ezekiel. And it talks about that their leaves will be for the healing of the nation. Same exact thing. So we see it in Eden. We see it in Ezekiel's vision. We see it in Revelation. What's wrong? Oh. Oh, wait, I'll take that. Wait. He really wants to be a new. He's trying. It's really cute. It's super cute. Just over his head. Oh, his nose. 
His guns are getting so big. <laughs> He's like watching himself. Okay, so I will, I'm not going to read through all those verses um, about the river flowing out from the presence of God, uh, just because I think it's probably overkill. I think you guys are getting the point. Uh, the reason this matters is, and the reason it's important to the overall story of the Bible is, we were dwelling with God in a mountain. We left God's presence on his holy mountain temple. We left it because we sinned. And we have seen glimpses of being able to get back in his presence at Sinai, in the tabernacle. Later on, as Solomon makes the temple, the temple's made in the same way. But again, we can only get there once a year. But it says this. I'm going to read from, uh, actually, we already read Exodus 22, 10 through 22, I believe, or 25. We just read Exodus 40, where the presence of God comes in and dwells the temple at the end of Exodus, or dwells in the tabernacle. I'm going to read from Psalm 2, then I'm going to read from Psalm 80, and then we'll kind of wrap up here. So, Psalm 2 says this. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed. If you skip down to verse four, it says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. That's this guy who stands above these cherubim in heaven on his throne. And he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them with his wrath. And he says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Okay, here we are. We once dwelt in this mountain, but there's a promise of a better mountain to come, Mount Zion. And God says, when the kings of the earth all say, we're going to cast off, we're no longer going to follow the Lord, we're going to be against him, he, sa he laughs at them. He says, I sit on the throne above these cherubim, and I have already placed my king on Mount Zion, on his holy mountain. Uh, Psalm 80 says this. Psalm 80 is... Uh, kind of crazy. Elijah read a little bit of it earlier where it says the shepherd of Israel, verse one, who leads Joseph like a flock. You who sit enthroned between the cherubim. As it comes down further, it says this. You dug up a vine, verse eight, from Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. So he's talking about Israel. He took this little vine out of Egypt and he planted it. You cleared out a place for it. It took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered by its shade and the mighty cedars with its branches. And it set out sprouts toward the river and shoots toward the, or sprouts toward the sea and shoots toward the river. And then he asked this question, why have you broken down its walls? So that all who pass by pick its fruit. He's talking again about Israel being destroyed by the heathen. Boars from the forest tear at it and creatures of the field feed on it. Return God of armies. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine. He's speaking of Israel. The root your right hand planted the son that you made strong for yourself. He's talking about the nation of Israel. It was cut down and burned. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. But then it makes this weird flip to a different son. Listen to what it says. Let your hand be with the man at your right hand, with the son of man you have made strong for yourself. Then, so when you do this to the son of man, when you make him strong for yourself, then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God of armies. Make your face shine on us. There is this vine that he planted on the mountain. It's Israel. But because of their sin, God broke it down. He burned it. 
And then they say, but let your hand be with the man at your right hand. Who stands at the right hand of the throne of God? Jesus. Yeah. Stephen. <laughs> Stephen saw him. He, Stephen even saw him as he was being martyred in the book of Acts. He says, I see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the throne of glory. That's referring to Jesus. Who's the man at God's right hand? It's Jesus. Who's the man? Who's the son that you have made strong for yourself? Jesus, who's going to bring salvation. So God dwells between these cherubim. He, he took this vine and planted it. The vine was wicked. He destroyed it. And now the only way that he's going to turn humanity back to himself is through this man at his right hand, Jesus. Uh, Matthew 27, 51 says this. We're almost done. We'll wrap up here. Matthew what? 2751. So just as a, uh, before we jump into this, I just want to make a, a real quick summation of everything. Mankind dwelt with God in the garden, on the mountain, in God's temple. He had complete access to God's presence. Because of his sin, he was cast out. There was a barrier, a wall put up. A cherubim guarded that wall. God wanted to bring man closer, so he brought Moses out and the people of Israel out of Egypt. He brought them to Mount Sinai. There he told them, there is a way to get into my presence. Here's how. It's through sacrifice. It's through living righteously. But because you're so sinful, you can only come in once a year into my presence. My presence will dwell between these cherubim like it does in heaven where I sit on a throne that is held up by cherubim. The temple had a wall. The temple and the tabern the tabernacle, I should say, and then later the temple had a veil that came down. The veil was blue. It was made of fine fabric. And on that veil was a cherubim, representing the same cherubim that guards the way into God's garden. This is all of human history now. We've gone all the way through. There's this temple it's the only way we can get close to God. And now we enter the life of Christ. Christ has come. He was born of a miracle. He's doing all these uh, miraculous things. He's healing people. He's raising the dead. He's multiplying fish and loaves. He finally comes to the apex fruition conclusion of his mission, which was to die for us. As he's dying on the cross, Matthew 27, 51 says this. Actually, verse 50. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. And suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom and the earthquake and the rocks were split. The access into God's presence has been blocked. And now the symbol is this. God has torn that veil. We have access into God's presence fully. Now, do we fully experience it right now? No, but Jesus has made the way for us to get in. That, that thing has been torn. We can enter into the presence of God Almighty, into the presence of Yahweh, just like Adam and Eve could. We can dwell with him there. Hebrews 10.20 says it like this. Start in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain. Through the curtain, the same curtain he's talking about. The curtain 
that blocked us from entering God's Holy of Holies. The curtain that was torn when Jesus was crucified. Jesus has made a way for us to go through the curtain. Revelation 14, 1 says Which this. Is the blood. Yes, his blood is our way through. Mine says that is his blood. Right. His blood and his flesh that was oh, torn sorry. down for us. <laughs> gotcha, Clay. Revelation 14, 1, we're That's seeing... That's why I don't preach. <laughs> we, are getting, we are getting toward the end, the consummation of all things, as the Lord is going to return. And then it says this of the Apostle John. It says that he looked up, and in my estimation, he's in heaven. And he looks up, and what does he see in heaven? It says this. Then I looked, and there was the Lamb, speaking of Jesus, standing on Mount Zion. We're getting close to the end. John is in heaven, seeing all these things take place. It's going to take place at the end of the age. And he looks up, and there in heaven is a mountain, Mount Zion, and Jesus is standing on it. Revelation 21 says this. Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I also saw, uh, Revelation 21. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. Then I looked and a loud voice from the throne. He hears this voice from the throne. Again, this throne that has been above these cherubim. Where the smoke is, the presence of God is, where Ezekiel saw this man that was fire and bronze, who was Jesus. And the voice said this, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them and they will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. We are completely restored to the place that Adam and Eve were in. We are in God's temple with him. He dwells with us just like he did with them. No longer a veil to separate us from his presence. No longer the veil of death over us. No longer any pain or sorrow. We are back at a place where at the end of all things, just like he said at the end of this creation, it is very good. We are now in the presence of God on his holy mountain. It is very good. I know that that wasn't much of a survey of uh, Genesis. We'll go further in. But what I want to do is as we do the surveys, I want to pluck out things that I think are really important. This is something that I would have never really realized before. But this is essentially the entire story of God with man and woman. This is it. The entire story is, I want you to be with me. I want you with me. You were with me. I made a way for you to access me in a small way through your sin. Now I've made a way for you to access me completely and fully. In fact, so fully that in the Gospel of John, it tells us that we will be one with Christ and he will be one with us just as he is one with the Father. We will have complete union with him. Even greater than what Adam and Eve will have because we will become part of his divine who he is. I don't, I don't, I don't think anybody can fully explain it. It's a mystery, but we will become one with the divine yeah, with his and we will be one with him. And there will no longer even be a temple. There will no, be no walls to stop us from him. It says he will be, as you read further on in revelation 21, it says there is no temple 
for he himself is our temple. So, I guess I just want to encourage you guys. And when you guys see things through the Bible, like a mountain, or you hear the Holy of Holies, this is all pointing us to being in God's presence. The Holy of Holies, yes, it was this holy place, but it's not a mystery. As you go through the Bible, the, the whole thing is, I'm trying to get you back to me. The entire Bible is God pursuing, running after, searching for these lost sheep over and over and over, trying to figure out a way to bring us with him that we can be a family again. That's it. And then he adopts us in through Christ and we get to dwell with him. And so we'll go through the the rest of Genesis next week. We'll try and get through all of it. But that's like a really, really foundational thing. Anyway, uh, let's pray and we can be done. Lord, we thank you that you you never gave up on us, Lord. Uh, Even though we deserved it. You never gave up on us, not because of who we are, but because of who you are. You condescend, you come down to us that you might bring us up. That you might bring us up onto your holy mountain, up onto Mount Zion to dwell with you forever. Lord, you are so good. You are so good, and we don't deserve you, and yet you have desired to make us one with you. Have your way in us. Make us like you. Conform us into the image of your Son. And may we forever, for eternity, sing those words. Glory, glory, hallelujah, he reigns. May we worship the God who sits enthroned upon the cherubim who dwells in unapproachable light, and yet you will make us light that we might be able to approach you and walk with you and talk with you. Gosh, what, it's just so awesome, Lord. We love you. Help us to love you more. Repent us of our sins. Repent us of the areas that we have turned from you. Reveal them to us and lead us in the way everlasting. Jesus, you're our everything. You're our hope. Let us stand for you by your power and your grace through all eternity. It's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we ask these things, Father. Amen. 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 Hey, Noah, can we maybe have some...